Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And as you will have noticed, uh, that is not Helen Lewis, uh, who's with me in our podcast catacomb this week. Helen is away, uh, and so Anoush Kaylin, our deputy web editor, has stepped ably into her place in a big and exciting week um, in in Westminster and beyond. Ian Duncan Smith uh, has resigned. Ian Duncan Smith has resigned. There's not a problem with the podcast, I just wanted to say it twice. And he's uh, caused a sort of mini crisis in the Conservative Party, hasn't he? Yes, so it was massive shocking news on Friday night when all of a sudden um, the Working Pension Secretary, who somehow managed to hang on to his job in Cabinet despite basically doing nothing but all of the things that he has done being either extremely damaging to um, government finances or to people's lives, um, suddenly resigned. And the reason for his resignation, what he said, was that he just couldn't stay on in his job with any conscience um, and continue, carry on with the uh, government's plans for further cuts to um, disability benefits, the PIP. Um, but lots of uh, journalists and commentators and other politicians uh, decided that this wasn't necessarily his only reason for resigning or even his actual reason for resigning, uh, citing reasons like Brexit, uh, fallouts with other people in the cabinet, George Osborne, um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, You have probably spent m- more time on uh, IDS and the consequences of these six years powers than probably anyone on staff, including you went back to Easter House, which is where he says he had this epiphany, which is what led to his first first for welfare reform. What 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 was it actually like there? Yes, well, back when he was Tory leader, he went to visit this um, big estate, big, very poor, deprived estate in Glasgow called Easter House, and it was cited as his epiphany because he was sort of photographed close to tears, and then he started his uh, compassionate conservatism project, in inverted commas, by the way, listeners. Um, and so I went back to visit uh, last year, I think, or maybe even earlier this year, I can't remember, um, to see how his policies as... Uh, work and pension secretary had actually affected the people who need government support the most and it was I mean I don't want to paint the place as completely bleak because it's unfair on the people who live there because he was the one who made it a byword for for poverty but speaking to the people there who have to survive on benefits um, their lives had definitely been made worse by the last five or six years of government Um, welfare cuts Um, so one of the main problems was that it's so much easier to get your benefits sanctioned now than it was before um, for minor um, 
for minor transgressions, but also for things that are beyond your control. Uh, for example, if you are actually working and you can't go to the job center that day, or you have you have a long way to travel and you don't have the bus fare, you can't afford it. I mean, that's the point. You're supposed to be getting state help if you don't have enough money, but people are getting punished um, because they don't have enough money. Mm. And so they have their benefits taken away which makes it extremely difficult for them to survive, but also means that some of them are pushed to do things that they don't necessarily want to. Like I met a man who had been arrested because he was because he'd got into a fight, and you know all of these things. Your life and your your social standing begin to break down the moment that the state takes away its help. Um, the fallout from that, as well as the U-turn on the uh, PIP cuts has left the government with this four billion hole, which obviously isn't very large in you know in terms of the amount of money the government spends. It's created a political problem for them and then it, it further busts Osborne's kind of austerity uh, narrative. Wow, it's much harder to be in the Helen role where you actually have to move things on and not just make silly jokes every five minutes. So but um don't tell her I said that listeners. Um <laughs> The the pressure on the government's kind of eased now, hasn't it, because of this list thing? The list, Jeremy Corbyn's list? Well, yeah, I mean, this is classic Labour. The moment the government is in crisis and it looks like, you know, David Cameron's cabinet is going to eat itself alive, Jeremy Corbyn pops up and does something even worse that that everyone then concentrates on. He's managed to do it this week by a a list from his office being leaked somehow to to the media, which is basically a friends and foes list. It's a bit like... The kind of list that you would make in school, like when you're about 13, of your crushes and their pros and cons. Um, so it's a list of MPs and it's got all these different categories. So, I mean, what was one of them? Core, so it starts core with, negative. It's core, core. W- which is this, this kind of your, your Diane Abbott, John Trickett, uh, loyalists of, of that kind. Then there's core plus, um, which is sort of people who are not necessarily in the inner tent, but they are people who are regarded as being on sides mm. like there are some slightly mystifying uh people in there who certainly have not been saying very nice things uh to me uh about well, how things are going on and then there's neutral but hostile yeah uh which um i actually think neutral but hostile seemed mostly i mean there was so, so mike gapes who's obviously gone on twitter uh and is, is not a jeremy fan at all is in neutral but hostile mm. neutral but hostile and then there's negative core or and then there's hostile Yes. Uh, and Hostile weirdly includes Ed Miliband and uh, Rosie Winterton, the chief whip. And of course, this is kind of it's it's, it's normal behavior for a leader in a parliamentary democracy to have a list of this kind. Um, uh, under Blair, the category, one of the political scientists had in his or her head, I can't now remember which one of the many politics I've been talking to about <laughs> the story, said, that, said uh, yeah, they had embittered sacked. But they said, but the thing you don't do is you don't write it down in a copy which you take with you because it appears in the Times uh, Deputy Editor Sam Coates found it in a bar in the House of Commons because it has been left there. Right, okay, yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's Corbyn style of politics, isn't it? I've heard that in previous governments, maybe Tony Blair's, but I'm not sure that they used to write it on a whiteboard so they could yeah. immediately wipe it off. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't blame him for making the list, but also <laughs> the fact that it leaked and also the fact that... Um, the fact that the list itself is not very accurate is also quite hilarious. So you've got, you you mentioned a few, but there's, I think Catherine McKinnell's on there who resigned because she said that the Labour Party was going down a negative path and she could no longer stay in the shadow cabinet. I think she's in neutral. Yeah. And, and so it's quite funny that even when they make these lists that are supposed to be super secret, um, they can't even get that right. Yeah. Although uh, whiteboards aren't all they're cracked up to be necessarily. Okay. Greg Pope, who was a whip, 
no, it was a junior minister, lost his job because during a reshuffle they did it all with post-it notes on a on a reshuffle and the his post-it fell during the reshuffle and it was and so he ended up not being because they you know when you move something oh we need to move them back his post-it fell another job wasn't found for him two days later one of the whips found his post-it note on the floor in the office so um so he's literally not a footnote of new labor history he's a forgotten post-it note of new labor history yes indeed (laughs) um and on that note we'll be back next week I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now let's go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So the talk at Westminster today is a list revealed in the Times today, um, apparently prepared by Jeremy Corbyn's office, ranking Labour MPs according to their uh, favourability towards Corbyn. So you've got a sort of core loyal group of 19. um, You've got uh, a neutral group. You've got a a hostile group. You've got a a negative group. And at first, some Labour MPs couldn't believe that uh, such a list existed. I think... um, in the Times story, one is quoted as saying um, the lesson from, from Richard Nixon is, 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 is never make a list of your enemies because there's a good chance that they'll discover it. This list apparently was left in a, a commons bar. That seems to be the most uh, likely explanation, So, um, which, which in some ways is so cock up rather than conspiracy, which is better for, for Jeremy Corbyn's team than having someone who is, is, is leaking something so embarrassing from, from the inside. But what was also interesting and embarrassing about the list is how um, misplaced some MPs were. So Mike Gapes, who has been one of the most vocal Corbyn critics right from the start, uh, was placed in, in the neutral category and promptly tweeted this morning that uh, I'm, I'm not neutral about anything. Brilliant. Uh, what have other MPs been saying about the list? Obviously, John Woodcock sent a tweet that I realised we're probably not allowed to... Uh to read out because it would jeopardize our podcast's U rating. Uh, but he had a reaction to the list, which was fairly off color, which I'm sure our listeners can imagine themselves. But what are other people saying about it? Mm, so Chukwu Amuna told me that um, I think he was placed in, in the hostile category or, or the negative one. And um, he said, I've been working hard to win um, elections for Labour. I've, I've, cons- I've consistently voted with the whip and um, I've accepted an offer to work on um, Labour's um, relationship with the BME community. Um, and this is an attempt to divide Labour. It undermines our unity against the Conservatives. So I think there are MPs for this is symptomatic of the mindset that, that Jeremy Corbyn's office have of, of um, Labour MPs, which is, uh, is that they're, they're out to get them. Corbyn allies would no doubt respond that they uh, have good reason to be paranoid and some MPs really are after them. After all, a lot of MPs have told me recently and, and others that um, they hope to launch a challenge after the, the EU referendum. So it's not um, odd or, or foolish at all for Corbyn's camp to be making calculations how, how many MPs support they have. The, the problem is that it's, it's come to light and also that uh, some of the calculations are, are flat out wrong. Yeah. Do you buy this? There's a conspiracy theory going around that the Jeremy Corbyn's team leaked it deliberately to show that they have 
the numbers to get him on the ballot and resist a coup attempt. Um, does that feel plausible to you? I don't think so, because I think MPs are already broadly aware of who might be prepared to nominate Corbyn again or nominate a, a successor. And I don't think Corbyn's office is quite that uh, devious and, and, and Machiavellian. If you look over the, the last few months, there have been um, plenty of, of cock-ups and not many uh, conspiracies, which, which is what makes um, the list and the fact that it's came to light uh, entirely plausible. I don't think, there's a, I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's a strategic manoeuvre by them. Um, and so one final, so there is lots of talk of a, rightly or wrongly, of a coup attempt. Do you think that this talk makes that more or less likely or keeps the chances of it exactly the same? I don't think it has a, a significant effect either way, but I think it will further turn MPs against him. I mean, one noted to me during PMQs that uh, Jeremy Corbyn didn't defend Rosie Winston, the highly respected chief whip, when David Cameron joked about her being in the, the hostile category a lot of Labour MPs feel that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't realise how lucky he is to have Rosie Winston, who's experienced and who's often said, along with Chris Bryant, the shadow leader of the Commons, to have kept Labour on the road in, in, in parliamentary terms. So I think this will further harm Corbyn and obviously has harmed relations um, between MPs and, and his office. I think the other thing which will harm Corbyn this week is his failure to exploit the opportunities presented by the Conservatives split and and Ian Duncan Smith's resignation. So astonishingly, in his response to David Cameron on Monday in the House of Commons, he failed to mention Ian Duncan Smith. It was left to Liz Kendall on the backbenches to uh, essentially make the point, even um, IDS thinks you're you're too right-wing now. He tried to make it a, a Prime Minister's questions, but it felt rather after the event, given that the government's now ruled out further welfare cuts, the budget has passed, um, the Brussels attacks have taken the focus off Ian Duncan Smith. Um, it did feel like someone trying to score open goals that they missed after the whistle had blown, sort of just hoping to have the feeling of kicking the ball into the back of the net, even though it's, it's, out, of, uh, it's out of time. And then, of course, David Cameron had this gift of of this list and um, and deployed it to good effect. And as he mocked uh, the categories Labour MPs were put into on the Labour side, they they pointed at their their Tory opponents, mocking how many the fact that many of them want uh, want David Cameron gone and want out of the out of the EU. But Jeremy Corbyn wasn't on it, wasn't able to exploit that at all. He could have said, "I draw up a list of uh, the Tory factions opposed to the Prime Minister," but it would take too long. Uh, instead, he just sort of pleaded with David Cameron to to end the theatre. And his supporters, of course, will say he's trying to change politics. He's trying to play a different game. The problem is he hasn't really been successful at changing the game. So there were some who thought when he adopted his own style of, of PMQs that it would cause problems for, for David Cameron. Um, but it hasn't really. And... Um, there's not much evidence at the moment that uh, that the Tories, for for all their failures, are, are really going to lose uh, any sleep on Labour. And on that cheery note, uh, I Rose, you won't be back next week because you're off on holiday. Have a lovely time, etc., etc. But we will be back next week for more joy. Hey. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it seems barely a week goes by without some new controversy in our universities, whether it's safe spaces or no platforms, or indeed recently allegations of anti-Semitism in the Oxford University Labour Club. We're joined by Henry Zeffman, your first time on the podcast. Very happy to be here. <laughs> you don't look very happy, but maybe you will be. No, no, this is my happy face. Um, as our kind of representative, now that's, I'm afraid, Stephen, though, you're, you're, you're too old to have an opinion <laughs> on this, but you are our representative of, of, of a recent graduate who therefore is presumed to have some insight. You wrote a piece for the magazine about what happened at o- uh, Oxford's Labour Club. Can you just tell us a bit more about that and why we should, why we should care, really? Sure. Um, well, I was co-chair of the Oxford University Labour Club. Uh, the start of 2014, uh, the blissful time when we were just over a year away from Ed Miliband's inevitable government. And um, I am also Jewish or Jewish, as I like to say. And I never uh, encountered any real palpable anti-Semitism. But uh, a few weeks ago, Alex Chalmers, who is, was co-chair, mm-hmm. same role I'd, I'd held, uh, resigned uh, saying that there was a climate of anti-Israel discourse in the Labour Club, which had, in many instances, gone far further than that and become simple anti-Semitism. Why I think Labour should care? Well, two reasons. Uh, the first is that these people did not become anti-Semites in a vacuum. They are part of a broader climate of discourse on the left, but also in some cases on the left of the Labour Party and, in fact, the mainstream of the Labour Party. And the second is quite simply, uh, without sounding self-aggrandizing, because I have no ambitions in this regard, a lot of people who run the Oxford University Labour Club and are prominent in it end up running the country or, you know, failing to run the country as former co-chair Ed Miliband. No, I think that's really interesting because we, we've covered this a little bit in online. Uh, Stephen, you have to say, you, you rein me back on this one, don't you? I mean, you say that this is kind of our over-scrutiny of what happens in universities can sometimes well, be a bit odd. I take the view that student politics should be scrutinised by student journalists uh, in student papers. And also, I mean, I suppose I am going to sound like like a lot like Boris Johnson now, but I, I think Cicero can teach us something here. <laughs> C- um, Cicero once wrote, times are bad, children disobey their parents, and everybody is writing a book. And he wrote that, you is know... Is that O Tempora Omores? Is that the original yeah. Latin of it? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure people will write in if it's not. So basically it's that thing that ev- students have always been lazy and ill-thinking. And... and Yeah, and everyone believes their own times to be uniquely depraved. I agree with Henry that there is something I have uh, noticed... As I've been cov- as I've covered the Labour Party, is a growing anti-Semitism uh, being becoming mainstream. I was really uh, surprised to hear this word "zio," which mm. is uh, some contraction of of Zionist, and I and I had already known, you know, that Zionist was a word that it was one of those words like immigrant that had an originally useful meaning and is now kind of completely, it's one of those red flag words that absolutely. you kind of go, oh, hang, where's this one going? But I mean, had you ever heard that, that word? Yes, but not ever used by people who were uh, in the Labour mainstream. And yeah. that's what was so shocking about it. Um, yeah, I mean, the word Zionist 
uh, increasingly is used as a code word for Jew, but, you know, has a tradition as a perfectly useful, in fact, a, a, a term that people who are Jewish or, you know, pro-Israel uh, would happily use to describe themselves. But now it's often used uh, either as a code word or pejoratively. But the case of the contraction Zio, mm. uh, it is unambiguously a pejorative. And so the fact that it's being used, uh, as Alex Chalmers alleges, with frequency by people who are very active in the Labour Party is is concerning. I think there is a real difference because uh, difficulty here because I, I saw that Hugo Rifkind, who is a Times columnist, posted about this, I think. Actually, and I think Owen Jones tweeted about it as well. And and the response instantly was, actually, it's not anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. Yeah. And that, again, is one of those sort of weird things where you go, well, no, it's not why you, yeah. why no, you bring well, no, that up. Exactly. The response is always, well, well no, one said that it, no one said that it was always anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. Um, as uh, Nick Cohen has been pointing out for, for years, well over a decade, and he has some... I think, a reasonable claim to have been prophetic in this regard. Increasingly, people who are anti-Semites use the idea that people are saying that it's always anti-Semitic to criticise Israel as cover for their anti-Semitic criticisms of Israel. And I think that's an important point which can't be stated uh, too often. I think that's also important because there are, I mean, there is a huge amount of, of criticism of Israel. Actually, I'm sure we, the magazine mentions it a couple of times this fantastic 20,000 word piece about, you know, Obama and his relationship. And he, 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 he talks about his relationship with Netanyahu in, in terms of in, immense frustration. Mm, mm. Uh, and, and some of the policies that ha, have, that recent Israeli governments have passed have been, you know, incredibly uh, discriminatory and, and offensive. The, but but there's absolutely but he he has done it in a way that there of which there is absolutely no hint that there is any sure. kind of sense that he thinks there's some sort of yeah. like you know, world conspiracy or you know, bags of gold or any of the kind of strange tropes that kind of keep Henry. I want to ask you. My thesis has always been in my day. I was in university two thousand and one to two thousand and four. We had tuition fees are just were just coming in. There was the Iraq War, which was a massive massive thing for all student activists. What colour was the TV then, Grandad? <laughs> We had five. We only had five channels. I just put that out there. Um, yeah, and then, but uh, you know, it felt as though actually there we were fighting the man more than we were fighting each other. But have students got kind of more t- this sort of thesis, this sort of Stepford student thesis? I know sure. Brendan. Have they got more totalitarian, more intolerant of dissent, more prone to the wars, or are we just noticing it more because they're all tweeting? Angrily. I mean, the uh, probably the awkward answer is I don't know. I certainly think that uh, there. I mean, I, I don't think it's true that there weren't big uh, things that my student generation was dealing with. I mean, I was the first year uh, who was charged nine thousand pounds rather than three thousand pounds tuition fees, and uh, you know, plenty of people were pretty angry about that. Mm. Um, but yes, I think you're certainly right that uh, a lot of the disputes at the moment seem to be. Uh, internal within the student movement. By the way, I mean, I don't always think that's a bad thing. Far from it. I think uh, certainly I and lots of other people have uh, become far more aware of the various privileges that some groups enjoy and some marginalised groups don't enjoy uh, and the importance of, uh, you know, an intersectional uh, approach to issues of injustice. And I think that's uh, really salutary and good. The other thing that I'm always reminded of is that uh, as frustrating and mad as many of the things that the National Union of Students does at the moment, uh, and it's worth remembering that almost every student knows nothing and pays no attention to anything that they do, which is part of the reason they have the license to do these things. Uh, but, you know, the NUS was run by communists for a decade, uh, not so long ago. 
communists who are mostly now Blairites, by the way. Um, I mean, students were never, you know, uh, Peter Mandelson, former communist, was not a fully formed Blairite as a, as a young man. Mm. Uh, Alan Milburn ran a, a radical bookshop called uh, Days of Hope or Haze of Dope, as it became colloquially known, uh, and then ended up, uh, uh, you know, uh, introducing or uh, hastening the introduction of market Tonization into the health service. So, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, be too wary that everyone from my generation is going to remain. Uh, now, Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, has a has a saying because he was a left wing student. Sure. You know, if you're you sh- if you're not left wing at twenty, you know, you have no heart. If you're still left wing at forty, you have no head. Or I might be slightly misquoting him then, but the premise is is that that every you know that everybody, no matter how how far they they travel right over their lives, flirts with with being lefty than they are as a student. I just think there's one of the things that I think is a really interesting strain that maybe we should come back to later is the f- feminist societies' attitudes towards Islamic societies. And I think it's very interesting that you see feminist societies that are usually so attentive to, like you say, intersectional issues, issues around race um, and gender, uh, don't have a lot of criticism for actually borderline Islamist, mm. Islamic extremist preachers who probably aren't that LGBT friendly. Strangely, in that sense, in those they often seem to kind of get a pass on that. But equally, the cruel reality of, uh, and I'm getting to the age where this is already starting to play itself out, many of the people in those societies will suddenly turn a blind eye to sending their children to single-sex schools as well. Uh, they will decide that actually... Well, no, it's I think it's really funny that you see that, you know, all these terrifying things about Labour meetings segregated and, and stuff like that from people who sent their kids to Eton or, yeah. uh, you know, or single-sex schools. Actually, sometimes, you know, and, and as a feminist, there are very good reasons for single-sex spaces. Not least, and people should be allowed to, in my opinion, self-organise how, how they want to. But for public meetings, it's slightly different. But yeah, I suppose as soon as you say, and it's Muslims doing it, people kind of go, ah. Freak out. I think I think it's the very attentiveness towards intersectionality which sometimes leads to these funny and I think often accidental double standards. So witness, for example, um, the uh, the NUS. There was a motion in 2014 uh, petitioning that uh, it some sort of one of its many organs condemn ISIS. Uh, pretty uncontroversial, you might think. Now, some bigwigs in the NUS said, well, actually, that might be construed as Islamophobic. Uh, and therefore the motion fell and they decided that they couldn't, as an organisation, condemn ISIS. Now, obviously, that is ludicrous, but it comes from a sort of, it comes from a good place. That good place is being contorted. To... I'm not defending it at all. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just sort of charting its its origin. It, it isn't a load of people sat in a room saying, well, I have sympathy with ISIS. I bloody love ISIS. Uh, it's yeah. a load of people sat in a room trying to do a good thing and making themselves do ridiculous things in the process. Now, I think it is unambiguously ridiculous that they couldn't find it in themselves to condemn ISIS. But I think to understand the genesis of those kinds of weird stories, which are, you know, 300 words on page four of the Daily Mail, there's a much longer story of attempts to be intersectional, which are prima facie laudable, which end up contorted out of all reasonableness. Well, that's it. We sorted out students and we're against them. (laughs) (laughs) Public health. Um, Yeah. Thank you very much, Henry, for joining us. Thank you. And now a section called You Ask Us. What have people asked us this week, Stephen? Well, we have a question from Katie Lee, which um, to, you know, introduced it saying, oh, I, I'm worried it's a stupid question, but I think it's a very good question, which actually goes to the heart of a lot of what happened in uh, the summer to the Labour Party and why some people acted in the way they did. Why did Labour never refer to the small Tory majority post-election? You'd think they'd won a landslide. Obviously, they only have a majority of, of 12. Um, yeah, 
Well, I think I'm, I'm aware that I'm cribbing this from George previously, but I think it's a case of direction of travel. And I think it's partly down to the fact that it was so unexpected. I think because we had so much discussion, and this is this kind of goes to the heart of the conversation about why poll, you know, polling is, you know, is interesting, but it also by its very nature changes the result that it's kind of, you know, it's the, I think it's the Hawthorne effect, you know, you change stuff by observing it. And um, because we had all this kind of conjecture about a Labour-SNP deal, that then as soon as there was a Tory majority, no one had sort of had anything prepped for that. So that seemed like a really stunning win. Whereas if he'd gone down from having a majority of 40 to majority... Well, effectively, he went down... He did, effectively, he did, because he had the Lib Dems, he had a majority of 60. So David Cameron effectively went down from a majority of 60 to one of 12. And if it had been presented that way, it would have been really much more seen as this is a kind of wing and a prayer government. I think you're exactly right. It was the surprise. It's also for... For geeks like me who obsess over individual seats, though there are now basically only 23 seats that we would usually think of as marginals that Labour could would hope to win very easily. Are those all Labour kind of Tory? 2000, yeah, so that, 2000, um, that 2,000 vote margin. There's only one which is not, and it is Nick Clegg in Sheffield Hallam, where Labour came a... A fairly close second. Because there were whispers, you know, will is Nick Clegg going to lose his seat? And then someone said to me not long after the vote, I bet Nick Clegg wishes that he had lost his seat because now he's got to haunt Westminster for five years. Yeah, because they can't afford all risk of by election. Yeah. Uh, and so he's kind of stuck there. I also think, and the reason why I think it's important to how people behaved in the summer, for a lot of people at the top of the Labour Party, they woke up under the coalition, one, believing they'd get back into office soon, because of the polls, but also they knew at least one. That most people knew at least one Lib Dem through maybe a campaign to keep Britain in the Euro, in Europe, or through the Euro, or, you know, or some, or you know, something for electoral reform. And so they always had this idea of oh, there might be something we can defeat the government on. There might be, and then suddenly, even though it's got a smaller majority, the issues on which they can go oh, we can we can try and force a U-turn here. That that has got much smaller. So the opposition. In the, particularly in Parliament, feels a lot weaker because they don't think they can beat them as much as they, they I could. also think that, that one of the reasons that that's been reinforced, that we haven't ended up feeling that the government's majority was really small, is that the majority of their defeats have been characterised by such unrest in their own ranks. I mean, inevitably with an overall majority, but but tax credits was preceded, you know, that U-turn was preceded by... Uh, you know, a massive swelling of, of angst on the Tory benches, and then actually a defeat in the Lords where they don't have a majority. This is another thing I guess people don't talk about enough. Um, I had uh, Baroness Hollis on Week in Westminster when I was presenting that, and she said, you know, the, the Tories are really angry because of the first time in uh, ever they've been in government without a majority in the Lords because we've taken out all the hereditary peers. But they should do what I had to do when I was a government minister, which was they had to go and convince people in the Lords who are crossbenchers to vote for you. And they just assume that there should be a permanent Tory majority in the Lords because they were they were used to that pre nineteen ninety seven. And I think that's another factor that we don't talk about enough. One of the things that's characterises Parliament so far is stuff being ping ponged back from the from the Lords. I think in fact a Tory Peer is standing up today to talk about uh, defeating some of the stuff about short money and about the trade union funding. Yeah. So, actually, you've ended up with some some interesting positions being taken by people on the on the Tory side, and that's why. Also, I think we've been focusing on that really big split in Europe, which is a hundred MPs. So, actually, you, you almost begin when you think of Tory splits, you don't begin to think of them as parliamentary majorities. You think of them as splits over the EU. Yeah. 
Well, that's, that's, that wasn't a stupid question at all. And, you know, I really love stupid questions because I feel like often what happens is people don't ask what they feel is a question that everyone else knows the answer to. And it turns out that's not the case. It's just that... And I think we definitely did over the summer talk ourselves into this mm. because the defeat was so unexpected for most people and its scale was... Then, you know, and then it sort of got to that point towards the end of the leadership election. People started going, yeah, they only have a majority of 12. They are they are beatable. They're not as Corinthian as... Uh, as they appear. And uh, it did, I think, contribute to a mood of fatalism. I mean, also the fact the other three candidates weren't very good. But I think one of the advantages uh, Corbyn had was, one, he was the best candidate in terms of how he ran his campaign. And also there was a feeling of despair around mm. the uh, the. Yeah, I think it was a feeling that, candidate. you know, we should have had this election. We thought, we actually, we banked it. We thought we had it in some form or other, even if it was a deal with the Lib Dems or the Scottish Nationalists or whoever. We thought we had it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork, and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.